From New York, this is Democracy Now! While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. Democrats had a strong night. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. And we had the best midterm for governors since 1986. The balance of power in Congress is still up for grabs two days after the midterm elections. If Republicans do take control of the House, it may be because of New York State, where Republicans have flipped four House seats. Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is calling for the resignation of the head of the New York State Democratic Committee. We'll get the latest. Then... We look at what the midterms mean for the movement to reform the criminal justice system. Among the many surprises coming out of election night on November the 8th were a wave of progressive prosecutor victories across the country, showing that despite predictions, the movement isn't dead. In fact, major victories were won in red and purple states, including Iowa, Minneapolis and Texas. And the Supreme Court heard oral arguments Wednesday in a case focused on the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was created to prevent family separations in Native communities. If the law is overturned, it could have seismic implications for Indigenous nations in the United States. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The battle for control of the U.S. Congress hangs in the balance two days after midterm elections, when predictions of a red wave of Republican victories fail to materialize. Three undetermined races will determine whether Democrats or Republicans hold power in the Senate. In Arizona, incumbent Democratic senator astronaut Mark Kelly has a significant lead over Republican Blake Masters, with nearly a third of ballots yet to be counted. In Nevada, Trump-supporting Republican Adam Laxalt is leading incumbent Democratic senator Catherine Cortez Masto by fewer than 20,000 votes. Most of the 20 percent of the ballots yet to be counted are mail-in votes from urban areas likely to favor Cortez Masto. In Georgia, newly re-elected Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced plans for a December 6 runoff in Georgia's Senate race. Incumbent Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock received about 30,000 more votes than his Republican rival, the former football star Herschel Walker. But Warnock fell just shy of the 50 percent mark needed to avoid a runoff. In Wisconsin, Lieutenant Governor Democrat Mandela Barnes has conceded to incumbent Senator Ron Johnson in a closely fought and watched contest. Senator Johnson is a climate denier who's downplayed the January 6th Capitol riot just ahead of the insurrection. He and his staff tried to deliver lists of fake electors to Vice President Mike Pence. Here in New York, Congressmember Sean Patrick Maloney has conceded to Republican State Assembly member Mike Lawler in the race for the newly redrawn 17th Congressional District. Maloney served as chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, making it his responsibility to protect Democrats' majority in the House. We'll talk more about what happened in New York State 
after headlines. On Wednesday, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy declared his candidacy for its Speaker of the House, even though Republicans significantly underperformed in the midterms and they have yet to clinch a House majority. McCarthy's main rival for House Speaker, Louisiana Congressmember Steve Scalise, said he would instead run to become Republican majority leader. More than 210 Republicans who denied the results of the 2020 election or cast doubt on Joe Biden's presidential victory won races for Congress, governor, secretary of state or attorney general. One top election denier is Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who's refused to say if she would accept defeat at the polls. With 70 percent of votes counted, Democrat Katie Hobbs holds a razor-thin lead over Carrie Lake. In Michigan, where Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer easily won re-election Tuesday, Democrats have won back full control of the legislature for the first time since 1983. Democrats also won complete control of both legislative chambers and the governor's office in Maryland, Massachusetts and Minnesota. Nebraska voters have approved a ballot measure to incrementally raise the state's minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2026. In South Dakota, voters have approved a ballot measure to expand the state's Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act. The move to bring health insurance to an estimated 45,000 low-income people was opposed by South Dakota Republicans, including Governor Kristi Noem. On Wednesday, President Joe Biden called Election Day a good day for democracy. He also said he intends to announce early next year whether he'll run for a second term as president in 2024. This is ultimately a family decision. I think everybody wants me to run, but we're going to have discussions about it. And I don't feel in any, any hurry one way or another to, to, to make that judgment. Wait, today, tomorrow, whenever, no, no matter what the, 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 my predecessor does. Iran's parliament has voted overwhelmingly in favor of the death penalty for protesters arrested at anti-government demonstrations. The vote follows reports of widespread human rights abuses directed in an estimated 15,000 protesters held in Iranian jails. One female protester in her 20s told the BBC she witnessed physical and psychological torture, saying she could hear the sound of screams as prison guards beat young men in a cell next to hers. Massive protests erupted across Iran in September after the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman in police custody. Masa Amini had been arrested for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly. On Wednesday, one of Iran's best-known actors, Tarana Aladusti, posted an image of herself on social media without a hijab, in violation of Iranian law, which requires women to cover their hair. She held a sign reading, Woman, Life, Freedom, in Kurdish. Russian military leaders say they've ordered troops to withdraw from the city of Kherson, the lone regional capital seized by Russia after its invasion in February. On Wednesday, state media broadcast a televised briefing between Russia's defense minister and commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, Sergei Sorovkin. 
Having comprehensively assessed the situation, I propose we take up defensive positions along the left bank of the Dnipro River. I understand that this is a very difficult decision. At the same time, we will save, most importantly, the lives of our troops and the overall combat effectiveness of the troops. The loss of Kherson would be the latest in a series of battlefield defeats for Russia, as Ukrainian forces continue to claw back territory. But officials in Kyiv cautioned Russia could be trying to lure Ukrainian forces into a trap. In Moscow, Kremlin officials say Russia may withdraw from a Turkish and U.N. broker deal that's allowed for limited exports of fertilizers and grain from Ukraine's Black Sea ports. On Wednesday, a foreign ministry spokesperson suggested Russia may allow the deal to expire November 19th unless Western powers lift sanctions on Russian agricultural exports. Russia's faced international condemnation for exacerbating a global food crisis at a time when the U.N. warns a record 340. 45 million people face acute food insecurity. Hurricane Nicole made landfall on Florida's east coast early this morning before weakening to a tropical storm. Nicole put power to at least 82, cut power to at least 82,000 homes and businesses and brought about coastal flooding, strong winds and storm surges. It's only the fourth ever recorded November hurricane to hit the mainland United States. Global heating is creating far-reaching and worsening crises in every part of the United States, according to a draft of a major upcoming report by the National Climate Assessment. The report finds the U.S. has warmed 68 percent faster than Earth as a whole over the past half-century. A drastic and urgent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is the only way to slow down the climate-driven disasters from drought, excessive heat, and extreme weather events. The report also says the worsening and climate catastrophe will drive more forced migration, create public health crises, and increase morbidity and mortality, and further threaten biodiversity. The authors note if the world can reach zero or net zero emissions, warming will stop, curbing some of the worst effects of climate change. The U.S. would need to reduce emissions by over 6 percent every year to meet the Biden administration's goal of net zero by 2050. In news from the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, the group Global Witness found the number of delegates linked to the fossil fuel industry is 25 percent higher than at last year's COP meeting. That's more than 600 people higher than the combined number of delegates from the 10 countries most impacted by the climate crisis. On Wednesday, activists staged a number of protests at COP27. Youth activist Lucky Abang of the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance demanded rich countries pay poor nations for loss and damage caused by climate disasters, like recent floods in Nigeria that killed more than 600 people while displacing over a million. We want world leaders to take this agenda very serious because our future as young people is at stake. We contribute less than 4% to the global greenhouse gas emission, but yet the worst impact of climate change is upon us here in Africa. British-Egyptian political prisoner al-Abdel Fattah is now on the fifth straight day of a complete hunger and water strike as his family and supporters to continue to press for his release and proof that he's still alive. 
Earlier today, prison officers informed the family medical intervention was taken, though no further details about his condition are known. This is his mother, Professor Leila Suef, speaking Wednesday from outside the jail where Ala has been held, about 60 miles north of Cairo. Up until yesterday, I could have believed that he was fine, but he can't be all right after four days without any intake. He believes that if this ends in his death, the political price will be high for the regime, and he has already achieved that with the scandal that has happened. And we have this report, a tweet from Allah's sister, Mona, um, who has said that— um, Let's see if I can find it. Um, a lawyer has been granted permission to visit Allah in prison, but she wrote, unbelievable, at the prison they are trying to prevent Khaled Ali from the visit. Meanwhile, a complaint has been filed against Allah's other sister, Sana Saif, accusing her of conspiring with foreign agencies and, quote, spreading false news. The case has not yet been accepted by the public prosecutor, but it puts Sana at risk of detention while she's in Egypt for COP27. She has already served more than three years in an Egyptian prison. In Britain, activists with Just Stop Oil brought parts of the nation's busiest highway to a standstill for a fourth straight day to demand the U.K. government stop all new oil and gas projects. Protesters climbed on highway sign overpasses, forcing police to shut down traffic. Dozens have been arrested this week, including youth activist Louise Harris. Over a thousand people in the UK died in just a few days because of the 40 degree heat, because of the climate crisis, which is fueled by oil, gas, coal, fossil fuels. And our government, they want more. It is an act of murder. And this is an act of self-defense. And we need you to join us in order for this to work, in order for our murderous government to take action and listen. How many more people in Pakistan, in Nigeria, have to die before they listen, even in the UK? And elsewhere in the UK, police arrested a 23-year-old activist for pelting eggs at King Charles and Camilla during a visit to York to protest the destruction wrought by the British monarchy. None of the eggs hit the royal pair. The young activist continued to protest as police restrained him on the ground. You know what? I'm with the citizens of Earth, every person who stands against fascism worldwide, all of the victims of police brutality, all the victims of slavery and colonialism and imperialism, every single person who's died, men, women and children, those eggs are the only justice that they're ever going to see for all of the people who've died so that that man can wear a crown. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The balance of power in Congress remains in play two days after the midterm elections. Control of the U.S. Senate rests in the hands of three states—Nevada, Arizona and Georgia. If the Democrats win two of the states, they'll keep control of the Senate. 
Meanwhile, Republicans have not yet won enough House seats to regain the majority. There are still over 30 House races not yet decided. On Wednesday, President Biden held a news conference at the White House about the midterm results. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. Democrats had a strong night. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. And we had the best midterm for governors since 1986. Many analysts say if Democrats lose control of the House, it may largely be because of New York State, where Republicans have flipped four congressional seats. Democratic Congress member Sean Patrick Maloney suffered one of the most shocking losses Tuesday. He's the chair of the powerful Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. According to the Cook Political Report, Maloney is the first sitting House Campaign Committee chair to lose a race in 30 years. Meanwhile, in the New York governor's race, Democrat Kathy Hochul defeated Republican-backed Lee Zeldin, but by just over five percentage points. Two years ago, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in New York by 22 percentage points. On Wednesday, New York Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called for the resignation of Jay Jacobs. He's the chair of the New York State Democratic Committee. To look more at what happened in New York and what it could mean for the country, we're joined by two guests. Zohran Mamdani is a New York State Assembly member, and Sochi Numika is director of the New York Working Families Party. Um, Zohran Mamdani, I wanted to begin with you. Um, if you can help to explain what took place in New York. It wasn't just random that Democrats lost a four major House seats, which could determine the balance of the House of Representatives. If you can talk about why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yourself as well, have demanded the resignation of the head of the Democratic Party of New York and what this has to do with a ballot initiative and redistricting in New York, one of the most Byzantine uh, states for rules around elections and voting. Absolutely. Well, I think on Tuesday what we saw was an illustration of just how broken our state party machinery is, and that is across the entirety of the state. Last November, we had a ballot measure which, if passed, would have ensured that we could have had a more favorable map for Democratic congressional races going into this election. And that ballot measure was opposed by the state Republican Party to the tune of $3 million and an entire statewide tour. Yet, meanwhile, the Democratic Party, headed by Jay Jacobs, spent zero dollars on supporting that ballot measure. And as is no surprise to any of us, because of the disparity in spending and effort, that ballot measure lost. And the loss of that ballot measure was then used as a pretext in the court cases that occurred afterwards to ensure that we had state-drawn maps, maps which were then far more favorable to Republicans, and maps which may be part of the reason why we do not hold the House. So all of that from both November into this moment right here has illustrated that our state party is simply not up to the job. The state party chairman, Jay Jacobs, is not the man to lead it, or the person, rather. 
he has instead been far more focused on defeating the left than defeating the right. He spent $7,500 to beat one of my colleagues, Jabari Brisport, who is running for re-election in a primary, which is $75 more hundred dollars than he ever spent on passing that referendum, which could have ensured that Joe Biden would have had control over the entirety of Congress to pass a Democratic agenda over the next two years. And Zoran, could you explain uh, when you say uh, what happened last November uh, with the ballot measure, explain why it's so important redistricting and straight uh, state drawn maps? Absolutely. So every 10 years with the census, the state has to redistrict all of its districts from the local to the congressional level. And there was a ballot measure which stated that if the Independent Redistricting Commission, a commission that had been created by Governor Cuomo, which had the same number of Democrats and Republicans, if that commission could not agree on a set of maps, then a simple majority of the legislature would suffice in creating new maps. And as we know, whenever you create a commission with the same number of Democrats and Republicans with the stakes as high as redistricting, there is a very low likelihood of them agreeing on any one set of maps. So we knew that it was going to come to the legislature. And if this referendum had been passed, then it would have ensured that the legislature had a clear mandate from New Yorkers to redraw those maps. The legislature, the, the referendum did not pass. The legislature drew its own maps, and then the Republicans sued those maps in court. And the highest court, the judges specifically who were appointed by Andrew Cuomo, sided with the Republicans and used this referendum as part of the justification for why those new maps had to be thrown out. And as a consequence, they ordered a special master, which is a title of an individual who drew new maps for the state of New York, to draw these maps. And many of these maps ended up being far more favorable to Republicans than the ones that would have been passed had we passed that referendum. And then you had people like um, Carolyn Maloney, these congressional stalwarts, the OG, the old guard, versus Gerald Nadler. They have always been colleagues for decades in the House. I wanted to go to AOC's tweet of uh, Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. New York State Dem Party leadership, which was gutted under Cuomo, stuffed with lobbyists, works to boost GOP, and failed to pass a basic state ballot measure to protect New York redistricting, must be accountable. I called for Jay Jacobs' resignation a year ago, and I still hold that position. Let's put this question to Sochi Numeka, who is the director of the New York Working Families Party. For people to understand in other states, that's a line on the ballot. You could vote for, for example, uh, if you wanted to vote for Governor Hochul again, you could vote for her on the Democratic line, or you could vote for her on the Working Families line. Um, Sochi Numeka, if you can address what AOC is pointing to, the legacy of Andrew Cuomo and big money donors and lobbyists who still control the Democratic Party of New York. Absolutely. Good morning, Amy. Uh, what we saw was just a series of failures and failed strategies at the state level that really result in an election that did not have to be this close. Assemblymember Mandani talked about the first kind of origin story of Cuomo's failed redistricting initiative. Uh, Sean Patrick Maloney then jumping into a district south of him, pushing out Mondaire Jones, Democratic incumbents, uh, retirements, and so on and so forth. We just saw a cascading series of crises that led to a low participation, low energy general election, uh, failed infrastructure ability to reach out to voters, especially young voters and voters of color in New York City by the state party, 
Uh, and ultimately, if the top of the ticket is not performing at a high level, it is impossible for us to imagine a surge or a wave at the down ballot level. And so we're seeing Republicans really taking seats across Long Island, holding on to seats on, on um, upstate New York. Uh, there is a failed strategy, absolutely, the Democratic Party. And for us, we think it's a crisis of democracy, because unless you're actually engaging, recruiting, activating, and speaking to young voters, to voters of color, to voters in the city. Um, you're leaving it up to consultants and the airwaves to battle for the hearts and minds of working people. That's a failed strategy. And now the Democratic Party really has to rethink what kind of party that they want to lead. And Sochi, what about uh, uh, victories for uh, the Working Family Party outside of New York State? What we did see is in many states, you look at Pennsylvania, Summer Lee, who held on to her seat uh, despite the influx, the kind of negative ads, the intense uh, dark money that was spent against her. Um, we saw that money also being used in the primary. And we see that in New York State, uh, as Zoran referenced to, right, the kind of tacit collusion between establishment Democrats and dark money to push out progressives, and then a lack of strategy in the general election. Uh, Delia Ramirez is going to win uh, in Illinois races. Um, so there is some energy uh, across the United States. Unfortunately, in New York state, Democrats not follow the same playbook that Joe Biden did, for example, about talking about big initiatives, commutations and pardons of federal offenses around marijuana, uh, student debt initiatives. We need big, bold ideas. And in the absence of that, we just saw this relentless, uh, rabid stream of Republican fear-mongering. And we'll be joined by Delia Ramirez tomorrow, the Congress member-elect from Illinois. Uh, she's the first uh, Latina congresswoman to represent Illinois, congresswoman-elect. Um, Sophie, on that issue of uh, Sochi, on that issue of the um, working party line, how many more votes did you get this time? And what does that mean? So what if you vote for a Democrat on the Democratic Party line or on the working families line? What kind of power does that give you? Well, progressives across the state really stepped up to defeat the far right. We knew what was on the line. We knew it was at stake with an extremist like uh, Lee Zeldin. And so what we're telling voters is that you can work to defeat the far right and you can put forward an affirmative vision of the New York state that you want. Uh, in the absence of that messaging from Democrats, we were telling um, New Yorkers in particular, young people, people of color, immigrants, those who the Democratic Party are mainly not chasing their votes. Um, if you want universal health care in New York, if you want universal child care, if you, if you believe that we should make um, the wealthy pay their fair share uh, and uh, pay what they owe in taxes, vote on the Working Families Party line to deliver that mandate. We see Congressman Ocasio-Cortez saying that in particular, that Democrats need working people's backs to deliver on those big initiatives. Otherwise, the Democratic Party is beholden to corporate interests, uh, to big donors, uh, to you know consultants. And we have to use our party line to deliver that mandate. We had over 280 or so thousand New Yorkers who chose to vote on the working families line to deliver that clear message. That is basically the margin of difference between Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin in this election. And so we know that New Yorkers, if these ideas are incredibly are popular with New Yorkers, and now we expect our partners in state government to heed uh, that and to deliver a real working people's agenda come January. 
Zohran, could you uh, talk a little bit about what you think is likely to happen and also uh, the base of support uh, for Jay Jacobs, uh, who you and, as we mentioned, uh, Congress member uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are calling to uh, uh, resign? Yes, I, I think, you know, first to be clear that the constituency of, of calls for resignation has grown to the extent that a number of my colleagues have been calling for that for, for many months and some have also joined recently. I'm thinking of Assemblywoman Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, Assemblywoman Emily Gallagher, State Senator Jabari uh, Brisport, State Senator Julia Salazar. The, the list kind of goes on and on because so many people have seen that in terms of the vision that we have for the Democratic Party, a party that reflects the state that it is supposed to lead, there is this disconnect. And the disconnect boils down to the leadership of one person, Jay Jacobs, who last Last year compared the Democratic nominee for the Buffalo mayor's race, India Walton, to the head of the KKK and faced no consequences for doing so, continued to keep his position. You know, I think what yesterday has shown us is very much what Sochi was saying. You can only get so far presenting a negative version of the Republican vision. We can only get so far telling people that vote to defeat Lee Zeldin. We need to have an affirmative vision. The Working Families Party has laid out what that vision could look like, and now the Democratic Party needs to do so as well. And when I think about that, I think particularly about two issues, housing and the climate crisis. Right, more than 75% of New Yorkers across the state are concerned about rising rents, and more than 67% believe that we need to pass good cause eviction as a means by which to keep those rents under control. And so yesterday, two days ago, rather, when I was at the poll sites handing out literature, I was also talking to people about housing because in my neighborhood, rents have skyrocketed. In Manhattan, the median rent is now over $4,000. We're looking at a higher rent increase of 30% from last year to this year. So these are the issues that the state needs to deliver on when we get back to Albany in January. We need to pass good cause eviction. We need to pass the Housing Act access voucher program, because then we could have done something that we can point to when we come back to voters and say, we see the rising costs in your life and we're taking action on doing so. And the second issue is the climate crisis, right? More than 68% of New Yorkers on Tuesday voted for the Environmental Bond Act. 68% of New Yorkers voted for the state to spend more than $4.2 billion on remedying the costs of climate change on a wide variety of issues. And that shows that there is a constituency broader than either party that wants the state to take action on the climate crisis. And so when we get back to Albany, we have to heed that call, pass the Build Public Renewables Act, ensure that we have a greener energy grid, one that is giving out cut price electricity to working class New Yorkers and taking advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed in Washington, D.C. Zoran Mandani, we want to thank you very much for being with us, New York State Assembly member and Sochi Numeka, director of the New York Working Families Party. Coming up, we look at what the midterms mean for the movement to reform the criminal justice system. A lot was made of the Republican framing of the issues in this election, particularly around crime. But when it came to who was elected, it's very interesting to see the trend to more progressive criminal justice solutions. Stay with us.
Poor Moon by Canned Heat. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we continue our coverage of the midterm races, we turn now to look at what the results mean for the movement to reform the criminal justice system. Progressive prosecutors won several key races, including in counties in Texas, Iowa, and Minnesota, despite Republican candidates across the country campaigning with a focus on crime and public safety. We go now to San Francisco, where we're joined by Lara Bazelon. She's a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, the author of the book Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. She's also the former head of the Innocence Commission inside the San Francisco DA's office, which was set up by Chesa Boudin, who was recalled in a controversial vote in June. Professor Bazelon, great to have you with us again. Why don't you start off by talking about these victories and losses across the country. Not a lot of the corporate media is paying attention to that right now. They're not. And it's surprising because there was this prediction that progressive prosecutors were going to lose and that the progressive prosecutor movement itself was in deep trouble. And that is not at all the story coming out of this election. In fact, quite surprisingly, progressive candidates won across the board and they won in purple and blue, but also red states. There were some resounding victories in unexpected places like Oklahoma City, Polk County, Iowa, and a number of counties in Texas. Could you talk about this uh, controversial recall of uh, Chesa Boudin? Yes. So I think that Chesa Boudin's recall was seen as kind of a harbinger for what was in store for other progressive prosecutors. In fact, I think the real story is that it was an outlier. And I'll tell you why. I think the population of San Francisco is very unique and well were thought of and mocked as this extremely liberal over the top city. It's in fact, in many ways, a very traditional liberal bastion with some very well-entrenched, pretty centrist, moderate roots, and it has a very, very small minority population. What we're seeing in a lot of these jurisdictions from Marion County, Indiana, to Hayes County, Texas, to places like Philadelphia and Chicago, is that in cities with large minority populations, and we're talking about the populations that are most directly impacted by crime, the people who live there, they want a different solution. They want the progressive prosecutor. And we know that not only because they are continuing to elect new progressive prosecutors, but also, and this is another story of this election, they are re-electing the people they put in office four years ago. And, you know, it's interesting with respect to Chase Boudin, you would introduce me as the former head of the Innocence Commission. In fact, I'm still the head of the Innocence Commission. And I think that's because even though we have a new DA, this was a progressive idea that a more moderate centrist DA is continuing to embrace. And she has, in fact, kept our commission intact. So there are certain progressive ideas that even though voters maybe rejected the overall person in Chase Boudin, they very much wanted to keep certain kinds of reforms, including the reform that I'm lucky enough to head up. And, of course, we've seen a lot of Brooke Jenkins right now, the San Francisco DA, because of the hammer attack, this horrid attack on the House Speaker's husband, Paul Pelosi, Brooke Jenkins bringing the charges uh, against the perpetrator. Yet we now know, based on exposés in the San Francisco papers, she was paid to um, lead the campaign to unseat Chase Boudin. 
how has that changed the office in other ways, in terms of the kind of criminal justice reform that Chesa was pushing forward? Well, it's definitely true that the office has moved very much rightward since Brooke Jenkins took over as interim head. Of course, she was appointed by her mayor. And now I think yesterday she declared victory over her more progressive challenger. And you're right that there have been a number of questions swirling around the administration. There was the question whether she was actually being paid at the time that she said she was a volunteer for the recall. There's a question of some emails that she sent from her official account about a case that was a very high profile case when Chesa was first under attack, sending them in a way that was not authorized by the policy of the office or by law. So there are continuing to be these questions. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next two years. Another thing that San Francisco did was we changed our DA elections to match presidential elections. So she's going to be up in 2024 with Joe Biden and many federal elected officials. So that'll be a big turnout election, but also at that point, we'll have more data. So the truth of the matter is in places like San Francisco, where we did oust the progressive, we're going to have a lot of data a couple of years from now in terms of how the more moderate centrists are doing and how people are feeling. And if the story doesn't really change, then I'm not sure how effective that recall story is going to be overall. You could see voters turning in a different direction. But of course, we're not going to know for a little while. So here in New York, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul did defeat the Trump-backed challenger Lee Zeldin, who repeatedly attacked Hochul on crime. I don't think that if your two Mexican cartel drug smugglers busted with $1.2 million worth of crystal meth, that you should just be instantly released on cashless bail. Now, Kathy Ockel supports cashless bail. As soon as it got implemented, she was out there bragging about it. She chose the champion of the defund the police movement and the architect of cashless bail, Brian Benjamin. Yeah, that guy who got arrested and had to resign. That was her first big decision to make him the lieutenant governor. We need to repeal cashless bail. We need to repeal the HALT Act. Amend raise the age and less is more. We need to make our streets safe again. We saw this issue of crime raised across the country. And, of course, people are concerned about about crime across the political spectrum, but the question is how to deal with it. So I want to go from New York—I mean, Zeldin did this in a very typical way—to places like Minnesota, specifically Minneapolis, talking about defund the police. I mean, the issue of the police force in Minneapolis, where uh, George Floyd was killed, was so central. Uh, in Minnesota, the former Hennepin County Chief Public Defender Mary Moriarty will become the next county attorney after prevailing in a campaign to replace the retiring chief prosecutor, Mike Freeman, and even to Keith Ellison, who was just reelected as Minnesota's state attorney general. Minnesota is really a remarkable story, isn't it? Because it was kind of ground zero for the campaign, quote unquote, to defund the police. And so you would think that the Lee Zeldin rhetoric in New York, which, of course, was deployed at maximum volume, in state, but also local races in Minneapolis and Minnesota would have been extremely effective. And in fact, it was not at all. And it's so interesting. You're absolutely right. Mary Moriarty, she had a much more tough on crime challenger. She is a lifelong public defender. She was the chief public defender in Minneapolis and Hennepin County. So if anybody would have, I think, been doomed to fail under the tough on crime narrative, it would have been her. And in fact, it wasn't even close. 
Keith Ellison, under a lot of pressure, a very strong challenger, really people were predicting he might lose his reelection bid to be attorney general. And in fact, he won. And so all of those reforms are going to stay in place. And I think what that tells you is that this experiment, this experiment with criminal justice reform, this understanding that we can't incarcerate our way to safety, that the kind of cruelty that some of these punishments are exerting on people to no good effect, and then the other additional problems like wrongful conviction or just criminalizing poverty so that rich people who are dangerous can buy their way out, but poor people have to stay inside, that there are a lot of voters who realize that none of these policies are humane, just, or effective, and that the progressive narrative, far from being dead, is very much alive. Well, Lara Basil, I want to thank you for being with us and ask you for your final comments. What gives you hope across the country? And what message do you have for Democrats who were caught flat-footed on this issue of crime, but now the framing of this issue, who is winning with what solutions, um, how that can be amplified? I think progressives should take heart. I don't think running away and being terrified of these soft on crime labels is either necessary or effective. I think that progressives need to step forward and embrace who they are, which is they're going to treat people humanely. They're going to work on alternative solutions. They're going to bring the hammer down when it's appropriate, but they're not going to treat every single problem like a nail that needs to be hammered as viciously and as violently as possible, because we just know that it doesn't work. And so I would tell progressive prosecutors really to embrace your platform, to stand for who you are, and to talk about your victories, whether it's going after a serial violent predator and being effective in that respect, or doing things like restorative justice to help people who really deserve and would benefit from another kind of option. And so to me, the message really is that be who you are, because when you are that person and the communities most impacted by crime see that you genuinely believe that the tough on crime approach doesn't work, which they know, they will respond to you positively, even in the most unlikely places like Iowa and Texas and Oklahoma, and then in purple states like Minnesota. Laura Bazelon, professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Her book, Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. She is chair of the Innocence Commission inside the San Francisco DA's office. Next up. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments Wednesday in a case focused on the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, created to prevent family separations in Native communities. If this law is overturned, it could have seismic implications for indigenous nations in the United States. Stay with us. Not the type you see in movies Felt the spirit living through me Since I was a puny dookie Nietzsche, Nietzsche, looky, looky How I get low when I boogie Don't mind me some goody goodies I'm Nate and Bougie My wifey be the wolf And I'm the wolf that's from the sea And she no Pocahontas More like Buffy St. Marie Come do your dance with me I dip, you dip, we dip No, it ain't blasphemy I sip, you sip, we sip with Nisika I stand and rock with all my suit Without the rooses Me and bro came out the womb Nietzsche one and Nietzsche two we very indigenous people. Uh-huh. We some VIPs. I'm a blood thicker than Ulick and Grease. <laughs> Nietzsche, please sing your song. This is my jam. Got my fam all going ham for the land, not the gram. Statement that you who I am. We choose copper over gold. Praise the elders. I remember what I'm told. Never turn your back on home. We them bougie natives. I got turquoise on my red. We them bougie natives. Five rings up on my bed. We them bougie natives. Big hat with the bread. We them bougie natives. Got that 
Uji Natives by Snot Nose Res Kids. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We end today's show um, looking at uh, the Supreme Court, which heard oral arguments on Wednesday in a case focused on the Indian Child Welfare Act, a 1978 law created to prevent family separation in Native communities. The case centers on a Navajo girl uh, known as Baby O, who is being raised by a white couple who sued to overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act. Our next guest says the court's ruling could have potentially seismic implications for indigenous nations in the U.S. We're joined by Rebecca Nagel. She is a Cherokee writer, award-winning journalist. Her piece in The Nation is headlined, The Story of Baby O and the Case That Could Gut Native Sovereignty. Rebecca Nagel, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you lay out this story and then what the Supreme Court heard yesterday? Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, so Baby O, um, when she was born, she was left at a hospital under Nevada Safe Haven Law, and she went to live with Heather and Nick Labretti, a white couple who live outside of Reno, Nevada. They thought, given the circumstances, they would be able to adopt her. Um, but the child's father was identified, and it became clear that she was eligible for citizenship in the Isleta del Sur Pueblo, a federally recognized tribe in Texas, and that her case fell under ICWA. The Librettis were told they would not be able to adopt the child, that her placement with them would be temporary. And instead of accepting that the child would go to blood relatives, they decided to fight. They hired lawyers. They asked the child's grandmother to renounce her tribal membership so that ICWA wouldn't apply to the case. They got in touch with relatives who were considering fostering and adopting the child and had conversations with them to try and talk them out of considering that. And then a biased system with social workers who didn't understand how ICWA worked and didn't um, see their role as enforcing it, they got a lot of help. Um, when the tribe identified family members that were available um, for fostering the child, uh, the social workers in Nevada ha weren't calling those family members. Um, the tribe actually had to get a judge to order them to call the family members. And then when those social workers did call family, they tried to, again to talk the family out of fostering the child. Um, eventually, uh, the county pulled out a really weird threat that they were going to place the child back with her birth mother on paper, but that she would continue to live with the librettis. And so the case went to settlement and the librettis were able to adopt baby and that's what's a little wild about the lawsuit is that Heather and Nick Libretti are still plaintiffs. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court heard their case along with their co-plaintiffs yesterday. And even though they were able to win custody and adopt baby O over that child's blood relatives, they still claim that they faced racial discrimination that violated their constitutional rights, not because that adoption didn't happen, but because it was supposedly made it harder. And can you explain, before we go to uh, uh, clips from the hearing, explain what ICWA is, the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, which was passed in 1978. What rights did that act grant to indigenous children? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when ICWA was passed in 1978, 25 to 35% of all Native children had been removed from their families. You know, there were some Native communities that at that time didn't have kids. It was it was extreme. And so what ICWA does is it's like a set of guardrails. So when a Native child enters foster care or an adoption, um, ICWA works to keep that child connected to their family, connected to their tribe. And so it gives Native parents some extra rights, like it requires active efforts. There has to be a judge present if a Native parent does relinquish their uh, parental rights. It allows tribes to intervene in the case. Um, for children who are on tribal land, those cases take place in tribal court. Um, so it does a lot of different things, um, again, to try and prevent family separation in Native communities, which throughout U.S. history, there have been times where it has been systemic. I'd like to turn to an exchange uh, between Justice Kavanaugh and Deputy Solicitor General Edwin Needler during Wednesday's hearing. This clip begins with Justice Kavanaugh. So to get to the heart of my concern about this, uh, you would agree, I think, but tell me if you disagree, that Congress couldn't give a preference for white families for white children, for black families for black children, for Latino families for Latino children, for Asian families for Asian children. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. That, that, that's purely uh, based on race. But this is— And, and this is different and because—and I'll let you explain. Because it has to do with Indian tribes. Rebecca Nagel, can you explain what this is all about? Yeah. Um, Sorry, Rebecca, we're having a little trouble with your audio. Um, so uh, why don't you start again? Can you hear me? Uh, you're breaking up. While, while we fix this, I'm going to go to a second clip. You know these clips cold as you followed this. But these are comments of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch during Wednesday's hearing. We're going right now to Justice Neil Gorsuch. Uh, we were hoping that we had Justice Neil Gorsuch, but let's see if um, let's see, let's see if we have Rebecca Nagel up. Rebecca, yes. Thanks. Okay, Sorry. great. Now uh, we can hear you. Go okay. ahead. Um, yeah, so Native Americans, um, our sovereign indigenous nations and our citizens have a unique political status um, within U.S. law. So a lot of people think of Native Americans as a racial group, um, but that's not actually how the law works. The way the law works is that we're a political group. So just like certain laws apply to me because I'm a citizen of the U.S. or I live in Oklahoma, certain laws apply to me because I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. And those that unique political status goes back to the treaty relationship between my tribe and the U.S. federal government. So there's an entire section of the U.S. code with laws that literally go back to the founding of the republic um, that treat tribes and tribal citizens differently. Um, so, you know, I can access health care at a clinic that only serves, you know, tribes and tribal citizens. Um, 
tribes can operate casinos in states where non-native casino developers can't. You know, everything from land rights, water rights. You know, if we're just a racial group, what racial group in the United States has its own land base, its own environmental regulations, its own police force, its own criminal and civil codes? And so the fear is, is that this lawsuit is kind of like pulling a string on a loose sweater. And if they can unravel ICWA, then everything else will come with it. And could you explain, Lara, in your piece uh, in The Nation, the story of Baby O and the case that could gut native sovereignty, you explain that uh, there have been many attempts to overturn uh, ICWA the, um, and also explain who is behind these efforts. Why has that been a concerted attempt uh, to overturn this act? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's actually, unfortunately, a story that the media has really missed. And so, you know, places like the New York Times have reported this case as if it was it originated as a custody dispute. Um, But it's actually part of a coordinated litigation campaign to strike ICWA down that's been led um, by the corporate law firm Gibson Dunn. Um, by a very small cadre of right-wing organizations. Um, The Goldwater Institute is really leading the front, but in our investigation, we found that money from the Bradley Foundation, a right-wing family foundation in Wisconsin, was behind their efforts. And then a small group of um, private adoption attorneys and some organizations representing the private adoption industry. And so it's it's pretty extraordinary um, when you look at the difference in how many people are fighting ICWA and how many people support the law. It's extremely unequal. You know, there's Texas coming out and saying ICWA is a bad law. And on the other side, you have 23 states. And I think it shows where we are at in our democracy is that when something isn't popular, you could not, you know, get Congress to overturn ICWA. How if you have enough resources and money, um, you can use the courts to the same end. And talk about what this means uh, for the future of Native Americans and for this issue of sovereignty, how the story of Baby O, uh, as you point out, is so much bigger, and why these right-wing foundations and funders are so concerned about taking this act down. Absolutely. So I think we can see what their interests are by their own actions. So the corporate law firm Gibson Dunn and the partner who brought this case, Raheen, a man named Matthew McGill, um, filed a lawsuit last January. Um, making the exact same legal arguments that they're making in Brackeen, but instead of representing foster parents that couldn't adopt Native kids, they're representing a non-Native casino company that couldn't do the type of gaming that tribes can do. And the harm in that lawsuit is much more straightforward um, than in the Brackeen case. It's simply money. And so what is at stake for tribes um, is, I mean, it's hard to overstate it. It's basically everything. It's tribal sovereignty. You know, I was interviewing tribal leaders yesterday. It's a very heavy day at the Supreme Court for tribal leaders um, because not only are our children on the line, but the legal foundation, the legal structure that defends the rights of indigenous nations in the United States is literally at stake.
And one of the points that uh, Justice Alito made, which was, of course, extremely controversial, uh, he said that Indian tribes were often fighting each other before the Europeans arrived. Uh, your uh, response to that? You know, it's really sad, but um, when we take our issues to federal court as indigenous nations, we're not only dealing with justices who literally don't understand federal Indian law and don't have a you know, 101 understanding of how that area of the law works, but they have so many racist stereotypes in their minds about Native people that those stereotypes come out during oral arguments. So, I mean, the idea that all indigenous nations were just at war with each other before Europe came, Europeans came is obviously not true and is obviously very racist, but we've seen it before. You know, when this case was heard in the Fifth Circuit, um, a judge that was searching for a hypothetical pulled on the racist stereotypes that all Native Americans are drunks. And I mean, it's just shocking, but I think it shows um, how much ignorance and racism is in a system that we think is supposed to be about, you know, interpreting the law and interpreting precedent. Um, and so that's something that is continues to be a really big barrier for Native rights, unfortunately. I just want to play what uh, Nermeen was referring to with Supreme Court Justice Alito at Wednesday's hearing. Before the arrival of Europeans, uh, the tribes were at war with each other often, and they were separated by an entire continent. And now the comments of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but th th this new rule would, would, I think, take a huge bite out of Title 25 of the U.S. Code, which regulates uh, the federal government's relationship w with tribal members. Um, there are health care provisions that um, Congress promises to Native Americans off-reservation. That doesn't seem to fall in any of your buckets. Um, Congress has permitted tribes to exercise power over environmental regulations that have indirect effects off-reservation. That would, that would seem to go, too. Um, we have laws that promise Native Americans access to sacred sites off-reservation and religious liberties off-reservation. Um, that, that would seem to go. And I'm not even sure maybe the liquor sale, those old precedents, but maybe that's commerce. I don't know. But there would be a lot that would be bitten out of Title 25. We'd be busy for the next many years striking things down. So that's Justice Gorsuch, Rebecca. If you can explain what he's saying, and then finally, uh, as those arguments went, what you think the decision will be. We have less than a minute. Yeah, I mean, Justice Gorsuch was pointing out what a lot of legal scholars have been saying about this case is that if um, the Supreme Court strikes down ICWA on the grounds that the plaintiffs are asking is that it would have seismic implications for other laws governing the rights of indigenous nations in this country. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think it's very likely that this court will strike ICWA down. 
Um, I think we have a lot of justices on the court who don't either don't understand federal Indian law or not or are not interested in upholding it. And I would just say that, you know, as people are talking about how radical the Supreme Court is with reproductive rights, they need to be looking at this case especially. And again, ICWA is the Indian Child Welfare Act. Rebecca Nagel, Cherokee writer, award-winning journalist, will link to your piece in The Nation, the story of Baby O, in the case that could gut Native sovereignty. I'm Amy Goodman with 